0: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense Political Talk Without the Boring Parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we're still thinking about the meaning and significance of the confirmation of Katanji Brown Jackson as America's first black female Supreme Court Justice and of that horrible confirmation hearing she endured. Michelle Goodwin will comment. She's Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine. But first, the sheriff of Los Angeles County. He's got 10,000 deputies in America's biggest county with 10 million people, and he's become L.A.'s biggest political problem. We'll have comment from Gustavo Ariano. He's the L.A. Times columnist who interviewed the sheriff last week. That's coming up in a minute. The L.A. County Sheriff has more than 10,000 deputies to police the biggest county in the country with 10 million people and the biggest jail system in the world, and a terrible record of killing young men of color and deputies who belong to criminal gangs. The sheriff is elected, and in 2018, an incumbent sheriff was defeated for the first time in more than a century, and L.A. County elected its first Latino sheriff, Alex Villanueva. He promised to reform the department. Now he's the biggest political problem we have in L.A. because he's doing so many of the things he promised not to. For comment, we turn to Gustavo Ariano. He's an indispensable columnist at the L.A. Times, covering, as he says, Southern California everything. He previously worked at the late-lamented OC Weekly, where he was an investigative reporter for 15 years and an editor for six, and wrote a memorable column called ask a Mexican. He's also author of the book, Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America. He describes himself as the child of two Mexican immigrants, one of whom came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy. Gustavo Ariano, welcome back.
2: Gracias as always, John.
0: Well, some listeners may not be sure where the LAPD patrols and where the deputy sheriffs patrol. They each have about 10,000 officers. Please explain. So the LAPD, the iconic LAPD, is specifically in the city
2: of Los Angeles. L.A. County Sheriff's deputies, on the other hand, they patrol technically unincorporated areas of Los Angeles County and also cities. I believe they contract with about half of the cities in Los Angeles County. But technically, since Los city of Los Angeles is in L.A. County, they can also do things within that city. But historically, they have just... Patrol the areas where they have contracts
0: with and leave Los Angeles to LAPD. So the cities that have their own police departments do not have sheriffs. That's what, Beverly Hills, Santa Monica, Long Beach. But the cities that don't, that's West Hollywood, East LA, Compton, Malibu. I'm leaving out dozens.
2: Oh yeah, Lancaster up in the high desert. Remember, LA County is a humongous county. From the port cities of Long Beach, the town of Wilmington, All the way to the high desert, uh, you know, Lancaster, the Antelope Valley, mountains, (laughs) forests, and yeah, you have Malibu, you have Point Doom, you have Isla, so much, so, so much. And so the deputy the deputy is the Sheriff's Department covers that humongous, humongous area. 88 cities, I believe.
0: So after you joined the LA Times, at the start, you didn't write much about the sheriff until he announced last fall that all sheriff's deputies could wear cowboy hats while they were on the job. (laughs) What was it that got to you about sheriffs in Stetsons?
2: I had previously covered Villanueva a little bit because he, along with all the other sheriffs in Southern California, they refused to enforce the vaccine mandates that a lot of counties were passing. Villanueva himself has said, I'm taking the vaccine, but I think it's a personal choice. So I mentioned him in passing. But one day I remember... Villanueva was out in Venice, which is part of the city of Los Angeles. So he was out of his jurisdiction, but he was walking around Venice, the boardwalk where there was a big homeless encampment, just sauntering along saying, oh, you know, city of Los Angeles is not cracking down on the homeless. I'm gonna crack down on the homeless. And I just remember him, he was walking around with, I couldn't tell if it was a Stetson or an Outback hat, like Crocodile Dundee. I'm like, okay, you're trying to flex. You're trying to make yourself out to be, I don't know, Gary Cooper in High Noon, John Wayne and The Searchers. Take your pick of iconic Westerns. And I was almost gonna write something then to make fun of him, but then someone told me the reason he does that is because he is a survivor of melanoma, uh, you know, uh, on, on his lip. And I'm like, okay, even I'm not gonna punch low because my mother died of ovarian cancer, I respect that. But then a couple months later in the fall, he announces, During one of his uh, live streams on Facebook, now all sheriff's deputies can wear cowboy hats whenever. Historically, it was limited to official appearances or up in the high desert when you're on horseback. Yeah, you look good. But all of a sudden, I'm like, I know why you're doing it. Your, your, Your deputies really do envision themselves as the men in white hat against a lawless society to bring civilization. So it's purely political. But I thought, I, you know what? It's sometimes as a columnist, you write serious columns or you write lark columns. So I wrote this column on the lark. All right, there's your Sheriff Villanueva looking like Ranger Rick. And now all of his deputies are
0: gonna look like that. Ha ha ha, and I just published it. And this somehow got to him and he wanted <laughs> to spar with you over this. He went on his Facebook
2: Live to call me a vendido, a sellout. I responded in kind and just ripped him apart. Then I'm like, you know what? I have other things to worry about. But as uh, 2022 came along, Sheriff Villanueva's up for re-election. There's a June primary coming in. There's a lot of opponents going up against him. There's a lot of anger against him. I'm like, you know what? Villanueva's going to win. People make him out to be a meathead. He's not a meathead. He's actually very, very smart like Nixon. He knows. He, he takes the pulse of what's going on. And in L.A. County, you have a lot of Latinos who are pro law enforcement. So when I went to his when I requested an interview, my intents were clear and pure. I really just wanted to talk kind of like when Huntress Thompson talked to Nixon about football and only that that was my intention. I'm like, we're only going to talk about Latinos and your de- department and say what you will about Villanueva. But his. Sheriff's Department, it's over half Latino. It reflects, it's actually more reflective of Latinos in LA County than almost any big entity, public or private, that you could think of.
0: And you open with a really interesting question, how protest against police brutality is much more widespread among black people than among Latinos. There's never been a case of a Latino killed by a cop or a sheriff that has galvanized Americans the way too many cases of slain black people have. And he had an explanation for that difference. He starts out very
2: progressive, saying that Latinos don't have the same experience, uh, historic experience of racism and the longevity the way the black community has. So he's invoking Jim Crow, KKK, redlining. He's a Democrat, mind you. He still says he's a Democrat. So I'm like, wow, this is very progressive. I'm, you know, he's surprising me already. But then that's when the interview just takes a complete, not even a one eight, it's like a 720, just <laughs> a car that careens out of control on the freeway. And he goes beyond that to just start talking about how the black community kills itself more than police officers do. And no one ever complains about that at all. And then it just went downhill from there.
0: He had a lot of complaints about black people.
2: <laughs> i I was shocked. A lot, you know, as a reporter, when you talk to people, sometimes you just shut up and let them talk, and that's what he did. He complained that too many black uh, deputies had gotten promotions in the past. He accused them of nepotism. He said that black people were by far the main assailants again in anti-Asian hate crimes, even though the stats do not even do not even come close to justifying that or validating that. He said that the Los Angeles Times has too many black reporters, has too much black coverage, not enough Latinos. And he's going on and on and on. And I'm thinking to myself, I wanted to talk to you about Latinos and here you're going off on anti-black tangents. I'm just gonna continue to let you talk. And so when the interview was over, it was one hour. He showed up a couple of minutes late, but he gave me the full hour, maybe just a little bit more. So kudos to him for that. But I remember texting my editor. Then he calls me, I'm like, I was only supposed to have one column for you, maybe two, but I think we have a small series going on here because he said a lot of things.
0: I'm an American historian, and the way he talked to you about Latinos and blacks being enemies, being opposed to each other, and describing Latinos as more conservative, more supportive of traditional law and order, I have to say, that's almost exactly what Nixon argued back in 1968. He knew that... After the Civil Rights Act, uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 passed, there were going to be lots of new black voters and they were all, 100% of them were going to be Democrats. There was nothing to do about that. And his idea for the Republicans was to recruit Latinos because he said they were more religious, more family oriented, more focused on building small businesses. They, you know, he had this stereotype of the virtuous and hardworking immigrants, unlike the black people who live off government handouts. But that was... That was Nixon. That was 1968. (laughs) Is Alex Villanueva still in that world?
2: Oh, yeah. At the end of everything, that was my summation of him. I said he was Nixonian. And a lot of people took that as an insult. And for me, it was a warning to both the people who oppose him and the people who support him. Nixon was not dumb. His 68 election was genius because he did play on the antipathy that white voters were going to have against black voters. And now though the majority is gonna be Latinos and white voters against black voters. So he knew, especially in Los Angeles, when even liberals are now against homelessness, against a, a supposed rise in crime, he was speaking directly to them. So that's genius on his part. I do think he's still going to win the 2022 election, his reelection campaign, but also what ended up doing Nixon in the end? Himself, his hubris and his paranoia, and that's all Sheriff Villanueva, incredibly paranoid, also, uh, you know, keeper of these petty grievances that flare up and, on him like freaking a disease or something.
0: We have to talk about what the L.A. Times has uncovered about the criminal gangs of sheriff's deputies. It's pretty scary stuff. Oh, my gosh. So one of the big issues
2: over the past, geez, 30 years has been this plague of sheriff deputy gangs in the L.A. Sheriff's Department. This is not the liberal L.A. Times saying it, radical activists, as in the early 1990s, you had a federal judge decrying, in his words, racist white supremacist gangs that were operating out of the L.A. Sheriff's Department. So Villanueva comes in and all of a sudden he declares, they're not gangs, they're just social groups, they're social clubs. Even though there are many documented cases of these groups with names like the banditos, where all the members have matching tattoos, where members, when they meet another so-called group, they'll get in fights over rivalries there to the point where you also have, this. there's been lawsuits finding this out in court and whatnot. So Sheriff Villanueva, what does he do? Instead of eradicating these groups, he goes to the LA County Board of Supervisors, sends them a cease and desist letter and says, you cannot call them gangs? because it's (laughs) anti-Latino, because Latinos make up the majority of the force. And again, I was gonna ask him this before the conversation went off the rails. And I said, how is that racist? And so he goes saying, well, going back to the anti-black thing, I guarantee you if my department was majority black and I was a black uh, sheriff, there was no way on earth anyone would call these groups gangs. And so I told him to describe it. It's like, look, you know, what else, why are you gonna call them? Well, you know, these are just groups that they'll, you know, because he also mentioned that they have caused him problems. That he mentioned two cases where there was fights between these groups. One case, uh, in one case, 20 some deputies were let go. This uh, proceeded Villanueva. In another case, two deputies were left unconscious. And he said, well, you know, when you have these groups, sometimes they're gonna to have too much to drink. And then one person sees the girlfriend of, of someone else in another group. I'm like, you're describing a gang. That's exactly what law enforcement said says about Latino youth hanging out. He's like, well, no, the, you know, lat- you know, gangs, criminal gangs have that intent and their rap sheet has a bunch of crimes, whereas the sheriff's groups, their rap sheet has a lot of commendations. And as I wrote, <laughs> literally, uh, okay.
0: And of course, we have to talk about the LA County Jail's horribly violent places despite years, decades of litigation and federal oversight. The latest oversight report from court-appointed monitors says... There remains a serious and longstanding problem with deputies using force as guards in the LA County jails under Villanueva. Deputies brutally punch incarcerated people in the head and initiate unnecessary force rather than taking steps to avoid it and then fabricate reports to justify their actions. That's from the oversight report just last week. What does he say about the jails? It's a violent place. Sometimes things
2: are gonna happen. He'll say that when things cross the line, he will enact force against his own deputies discipline. But here's a problem with Villanueva. He he sees his deputies as they cannot do any wrong at all. And so because of that, if anyone criticizes those deputies, you must be anti-law enforcement. And even worse, even more Nixonian, if you will, Villanueva does not forget who insults his deputies. So if you think he said a lot of bad things about me, that does not compare to my colleague, Aline Chakmedian who covers the LA Sheriff's Department. And he just goes on and on about how bad Aline is, how she's not a fair reporter, and how the LA Times just does not treat them right. And his deputies have been just one circus after another. You have You know, and I do say circus because it's just there's all these different things going around in different rings. You have the deputies beating up, uh, uh, you know, people in the jails. You have the sheriff gangs going around. Don't forget, right after the death of Kobe Bryant, you had a deputy disseminating gruesome pictures of the accident scene of where Kobe Bryant died while hanging out at a bar just like nothing. And then Villanueva says that was never supposed to go out. And he and he's still in court claiming that Vanessa Bryant, Kobe Bryant's widow, did not suffer any undue emotional stress because of the dissemination of these photos. It's just an embarrassment. And Villanueva, someone who can never say I'm sorry. Although I was very surprised in one case where there was one of the most notorious cases of someone being killed by sheriff's deputies in his uh, regime has been the case of Andres Guardado, an 18-year-old Salvadoran American who was acting as a security guard in a body shop in Gardena, shot by two sheriff's deputies. Uh, Villanueva called an inquest, a coroner's inquest into Guardado's death, like like some like basically a joke. But in my conversation with him, he actually called what happened a tragedy and admitted that the feds are investigating that. So I don't know if he was meant to say that, but he said it to me.
0: And uh, he's supporting the effort to recall LA's progressive district attorney, George Gascon. Isn't Gascon another Latino? Another Caribbean Latino. George Gascon was
2: born in Cuba. Uh, Alex Villanueva was half Puerto Rican, raised in Puerto Rico. And Villanueva despises Gascon, says because of him, that's why crime rates are going through the roof. Villanueva doesn't take any responsibility for rising crime rates as whatever they are. And so Villanueva has been very upfront of his support for the recall campaign. There was a recall effort last year that fizzled out, but this most recent one seems to have a lot of momentum to at least put the co- the question of a recall of Gascon on the ballot sometimes this year.
0: Last question. As you said, the sheriff is up for re-election this year. There's a primary in June. Uh, what do we know about the people challenging him.
2: A lot of former sheriff's deputies who served in the department who say Villanueva is an embarrassment. You have some Latinos. You have a black sheriff deputy as well, Cecil Rambo. But they're all small names right now. Villanueva, again, he is running as an incumbent. He is running with basically every conservative in Los Angeles, which at this point is about a quarter of the population. But he has that secured Then you're going to have the middle of the road people who are going to side with him and the wild card. Really, the people who I think are going to elect him are the people who elected him in the first place, Latinos in 2018. You see a Hispanic name on the ballot, even if you don't know who he is and you see no other non-Latino, non-Hispanic surnames on the ballot, you're going to go for that one. I don't know if Villanueva wins outright the primary, which means it'll go to a general election. But at this point, the only person who could beat Villanueva is Villanueva. And don't count Villanueva out of beating Villanueva.
0: (laughs) Gustavo Ariano is a columnist for the LA Times. Gustavo, thanks for talking with us today. Gracias as always.
3: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.
0: Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson won't be sworn in as a Supreme Court justice until the end of the current term when Stephen Breyer steps down, and that won't be until late June or early July. But that hasn't stopped a lot of us from thinking about the meaning and significance of her confirmation and of that horrible confirmation hearing that she endured. For comment, we turn to Michelle Goodwin. She's Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine, where she's also the founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy and its Reproductive Justice Initiative. She's been published in the New York Times, Salon, Politico, and The Nation, and she's host and executive producer of the podcast On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin last time she was here we talked about her experiences of racism in daily life in minneapolis before she came to irvine michelle goodwin welcome back it's a pleasure to be with you john well many discussions of the supreme court on this podcast start with the dred scott case or maybe brown versus board of education but you open your new piece for the nation with an 1873 case called bradwell versus illinois that one was not on my exam. What was it?
4: It's not been on the exam for most people. Sadly, it's a case that is a bit obscure, but nonetheless important to U.S. jurisprudence and law. It's a case that involved a woman who wanted to become an attorney. She wanted to be able to practice with her husband, but there was a state law that forbid bade women from becoming attorneys. And the case was challenged all the way to the Supreme Court because she wanted to become an attorney. She wanted to be able to practice. She wanted to be able to have all of the opportunities as a lawyer as her husband had, and at the United States Supreme Court, they upheld this law that banned women from becoming lawyers in the state of Illinois, and the court used the most misogynistic language to uphold this case. They talked about how it was important for her uh, to take care of her husband, uh, how it was important that women uh, have their roles in the home, and under Undergirding all of this was the sense that women lacked the capacity to reason. Women lacked the capacity, as the court said, for forensic strife. Uh, And then the court justified its sexism and this ban by saying that even though they didn't have precedent, for the sense that women lacked capacity to think and to reason. They said it came from the laws of nature as if they had gotten a phone call directly from mother nature or from God to say that women should never become attorneys. And that I think is really important to the story about Judge Jackson and women in general, because it's not that women didn't want to take on these roles. It's that men in power barred them from doing so.
0: Please remind us how many Black people have served as Supreme Court justices since the beginning of the Republic, and what proportion of them were Clarence Thomas?
4: Well, this is such a great question. While in the 233-year history of the United States Supreme Court, there have only been two Black justices to serve: Thurgood Marshall, and after his retirement. Justice Clarence Thomas, who currently serves, Judge Jackson, when she becomes Justice Jackson, will be only the third Black person in over 230 years to serve on the United States Supreme Court. And while you're at it, and maybe this is the next question, let's be clear that there have only been five women to ever serve on the United States Supreme Court, and three are serving right now.
0: So- Judge Jackson is the first Black woman to be confirmed as a Supreme Court justice, but there's other firsts that she represents.
4: That's right. So she's the first federal defender to serve on the court, and that's critically important. John, when you think about it, the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution, what we call the Bill of Rights, All are designed to protect people from the tyranny of the state. There are specific amendments that relate directly to protecting people who've been accused and alleged of committing crimes or suspected of having committed a wrong to protect them against the tyranny of the state. And so the fact that she was a federal defender fits right in with what people who claim that they're originalists and textualists should actually celebrate. That is protecting even the most vulnerable in society against sometimes the misdeeds of the state. So that's a first. It's also the case that she brings to the Supreme Court um, a background from having been from the South. Both of her parents are from the Jim Crow South. It's been decades since there's been a justice on the court who's hailed from the South. So that, too, happens to be very important. She graduated from public schools. She's not the only person on the court to have graduated from public schools. But that's really important, considering that the majority of Americans
0: graduate from public schools. I want to talk also about the treatment she received in that confirmation hearing from the Republicans. What did you make of the way she was attacked? It was unbecoming behavior for such an august body.
4: And let me put it in context, right? So for people who might think that this is always the dealings and that there are no rules around conduct in Congress, nothing could be further from the truth. Here's an example after the Clarence Thomas hearings, Justice Thomas hearings to become justice, he was judge then, and that grueling offensive behavior against Anita Hill, it spurred women running for office. Do you know that rules had to be changed so that women could actually wear pants, right? So there are lots of rules about conduct, about procedure, about decorum, about dress. This behavior was so unhinged by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee um, who yelled, you screamed, you behaved in ways that were just simply unbecoming and demeaning towards Judge Jackson. Now, she handled herself with incredible poise and dignity and grace during uh, that process. One disappointing aspect of this is that when one reflects back on the hearings that Uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had, we were able to see her brilliance. We were able to actually learn about what influenced her jurisprudence and what influenced her as a judge. She talked about how each year she would visit the jails in D.C. and take her clerks there because she never wanted to be far removed from the lives of people in whose liberty she held as a judge. All of that provided such great texture, uh, which we can still observe in the transcripts and by going online and watching these C-SPAN videos. But we got none of that, unfortunately, with these particular hearings, all culminating not only in attacks against Judge Jackson, but I think fundamentally showing their hand
0: in terms of attacks on our democracy and the rule of law. And what did you make of the Democrats' response to the Republican treatment of Judge Jackson?
4: Well, this connects with my concern related to the rules of decorum. We know that they exist. And unfortunately, there wasn't the use of the gavel, which was deserved at numerous times during um, the space of the hearings. There were Senate Judiciary Committee members that said, well, we're basically going to treat her as we remember Justice Kavanaugh being treated. But they were wrong. Judge Kavanaugh did not experience what she was put through, and she was not accused by a credible witness of having sexually assaulted uh, or harassed anybody. But it was not the conduct that was experienced by Judge Kavanaugh, um, now Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, Justice Gorsuch. Uh, She was put through fire, really. She had to walk through fire. And it wasn't until uh, Senator, junior senators, Cory Booker and Alex Padilla, who brought a little bit of humanity back to the process. And that was quite moving, I think, for um, a lot of Americans who later said that she was, you know, their favorite in coming through this process in more than a generation.
0: Well, I have a theory about the Republicans' treatment of Judge Jackson. They faced a huge problem in opposing her nomination, because basically her record is flawless. She's always Mm -hmm. been excellent. And as a judge, she's been pretty much in the mainstream of things. She hasn't said defund the police. She hasn't said abolish the prisons. And it was pretty clear from the beginning she was going to be confirmed. So they were really kind of uh, desperate. And of course, there is the fact that she was a black woman and somehow a black woman can be treated differently by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Am I going too far there? You're
4: not. Unfortunately, there was a level of spectacle connected with racism and sexism and misogyny and lest people believe that that's perhaps exaggerating a bit, it's not. It, it actually saddens me, you know, sometimes when I when we have to reflect on these histories that should actually cause us all moments to pause. And I think that when we reflect on them honestly... You know, these histories include the spectacle and real pain. I don't make light of it when I say spectacle. I say spectacle for the depth of what it is, the spectacle of lynching, right? The spectacle of people taking photographs of themselves and mailing them to friends and family members, smiling, having picnics um, while Black people's bodies um, languished in the air or were burned uh, to the bone nearly. Um, There's this spectacle that is memorialized in images of hoses and dogs being set upon Black people. Um, The spectacle of being in diners where then Black people are pulled off the seats and beaten because they're not to be welcomed at the lunch counters. Uh, The spectacle of uh, Ruby Bridges being escorted at five, six years old, into school, surrounded by guards for her protection. Um, The spectacle of the integration of, of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, while mobs of hundreds are outside demanding that at least one be brought out of the nine students so that they could be lynched. These are the realities of our nation. And behind all of this sat laws and sat legislators who thought that the very laws that folks were seeking to strike down were just, even though we understand how cruel they were, how racist they were, how sexist they were. And in many ways, what we saw was a kind of modern version of the spectacle. And we saw that even at the time of the votes, the failure to pay attention to the protocols of Congress in terms of dress, coming in without a tie, doing the kind of thumbs down, um, the weight that Senator Rand Paul uh, you know, sort of made um, after the votes were in and the weight that was, you know, what was it, uh, 15, 20, 30 minutes, just the wait until his vote came through all of that to show a kind of sneer, And of course, along the way, a smear of her and the accusations that somehow she is a groomer of pedophiles, that she is uh, soft on crime, and that she cares little about people who are uh, victimized due to crime. The Senate Judiciary Committee um, and then broader senate showing such a level of disrespect and disregard that makes one question um why they are in those positions at all
0: and in addition to the abuse and the spectacle there were some substantive legal arguments that her critics were making which are pretty scary especially the attack on her work as a public defender which is about a larger legal principle
4: that's right. So, the United States incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. We incarcerate more women than any other country in the world, more than Russia, Thailand, China combined, toss in Mexico as well. And so, in that backdrop, um, and we understand that it's important for our democracy and the rule of law that there are people willing to be uh, attorneys who represent people who are indigent and who are charged. Uh, With having committed crimes against the state, and so both in terms of state public defenders and also federal public federal defenders who are representing um, people who are indigent who are caught within the federal uh, criminal justice system, those are very important jobs um, to have because justice does matter. Also, I think this is important to connect this conversation to what it's meant on the Supreme Court, where over time. Within that space, there have been far more people who've been prosecutors than there have been people who represent individuals who are charged with crimes, and that too is, you know, is what makes it refreshing in terms of Judge Jackson becoming Justice Jackson and serving on the Supreme Court in the very near future, uh, because we've lost sight of the full scope of this process and what it's meant to represent.
0: And finally, although we didn't get to learn really anything about her judicial views or even much about her life, the rules of decorum require that she simply listen to the people attacking her. She's not allowed to defend herself in uh, that situation. But even there, you've suggested in The Nation that we can learn some lessons from her conduct at that hearing.
4: That's right. We can learn a lot from her wit, her grit, her grace, her ability to be patient, her ability to be respectful, even in the face of scurrilous uh, attack, her ability to be able to pivot, her ability to drill down to the nuts and bolts of a matter, um, her ability to Uh, not suffer fools. There was a point in which she said that she had answered the questions and she was no longer going to entertain questions that were uh, beneath the dignity of the office that she holds and the space in which she was in. All of what she demonstrated, including the way in which she was able to educate the Senate and the public in the spaces in which that was permissible, showed us what it is to actually be a judge, what it means to be a justice, to have the kind of temperament, composure, and ability to be able to effectively articulate, um, even in the face of people who are engaged in vile conduct, and behavior. And so it was a terrific lesson. And I think that one could juxtapose it to the conduct and behavior that we've seen in recent confirmation hearings. I mean, she demonstrated uh, without being snarky, without being snide, uh, without acting arrogant, uh, really showed what um, we should want out of people who ascend to the offices
0: of being judge or justice. Michelle Goodwin, you can read her piece, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's Confirmation Moves Us Closer to Building a Better and More Credible Supreme Court at thenation.com. Thank you, Michelle. This is great.
4: It's always a pleasure to be on with you, John. Thank you for having me.